This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everybody. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I also would like to thank the Carta leadership for uh, inviting me to the symposium, and I thank everybody um, that is uh, watching for um, coming. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about line retrotransposons. But before I get started, I really want you to know the take-home message that I want you to uh, know for today. Um, first one is that the neighboring cells in your body are not identical. The second one is that humans restrict how different those neighboring cells can be a little bit more than uh, apes or uh, non-human apes. So with those uh, in the back of our minds, now let's start uh, um, with the exciting news. Uh, the exciting news is that we, what we learned in school about our own DNA is not completely accurate. The concept that all the cells in our bodies have the exact same distinct DNA, and that, of course, makes us very unique, um, meaning that me and my best friend, um, we're different, but all the cells in my body have the same DNA, and all the cells in the body of my best friend have their own DNA. That concept has been challenged um, due to... Uh, uh, new DNA sequencing technology and uh, models, both in vitro and in vivo, that can uh, test this uh, uh, concept. Um, the idea now is that we are mosaics. And that means the cells in our body are not genetically identical. That's especially true for, for a brain. And, but the good news is that you are still unique in your own mosaicism. So um, one, of the, one of the culprits for those differences in our that mosaicism in our genome is our retrotransposons. So retrotransposons are a class of mobile elements or jumping genes that are able to copy themselves uh, and they're all pre present in our genome and they uh, can insert elsewhere in the genome. Those uh, elements were initially uh, discovered, the transposome elements were discovered by Barbara McClintock. Uh, she got a Nobel Prize for that discovery and she uh, was not able to explain the inheritance of those kernels in maize that were different. She could not uh, had different colors. She could not explain by using typical Mendelian laws. So she went uh, deeper into the genetics of what was going on, and she identified uh, mobile elements, those DNA elements that were moving around and were uh, causing that diversity on top of what would have been expected by typical Mendelian laws. Um, the, specifically, the ones that we are I am going to talk to you about today. Those are called line one. And line one stands for long interspersed nuclear elements. And they are the only autonomous uh, mobile elements that are active in humans. Um, to have an idea of how many are there, they comprise about 20% of our genome. In comparison to coding sequences, that are the sequences that make genes, those are about 2%. So they are very abundant uh, in mammalian genomes and specifically human and non-human primates. So what, are, what would be the consequences of these elements moving around our genomes? Um, uh, imagine that you have a sequence in your DNA um, being copied and inserted elsewhere. So that new insertion can affect chromosome integrity, cause diversity, and can also generate changes in behavior and potentially uh, diseases. So the genetic, the germline insertions um, can cause those structural variants, deletions, sequence insertions uh, within the human population. So they happen um, early uh, during development, either in the egg or in the sperm, and they can be passed along to generations and impact population. Um, in those can 
potentially cause diseases and the first evidence of uh, disease caused by uh, L1 insertion, line 1 insertion was hemophilia A, resulting from a new insertion of a line uh, sequence. This was described um, decades ago by Kazazian. To date, over 120 human diseases are associated with line 1 events. So for a long time, uh, it was thought that um, all the the mobility, the line one mobility was happening at the germline um, uh, time of development. Uh, nowadays, we uh, know that line one incision can also take place uh, during embryonic development and even in adulthood. Um, so during development, given the copy and paste nature of the retrotransposome processes, line one driven insertions can accumulate. So as I mentioned before, they uh, can happen at the germline levels, which can have populational consequences, <clears throat> but they can also happen what we call somatic, which means um, not at the germline, uh, but later on during development. They can also happen at the embryonic development, um, and uh, they can also happen at the adulthood in organs, and I'm giving you an example of the brain here. Um, so how do we study line mobility during development? So especially human development. So first you choose a cell line that represents human development. And um, luckily for us, uh, research from uh, Shina Yamanaka in um, 2008 uh, made it possible for um, researchers to study pluripotent stem cells, which were, uh, which are similar to the earlier uh, developmental stages um, where those cells are now possible to become different uh, um, any other cell in the body. So those pluripotent stem cells are able to become neuroprogenitors and neurons, for instance, but also other cells in the body. So we can use these uh, lines uh, in uh, the research laboratorial setting to study um, human development aspects. And we can look at, uh, indicated here by those red arrows, by you can look at line retrotransposition in these different steps, stages. Another uh, um, way is, or an additional way to, to study line mobility is to choose a system that will allow for monitoring line mobility in real time. Um, so we took advantage of a genetically engineered line one element, and that element can um, um, allow us to see a live mobility happening. How do we do that? Uh, it's uh, uh, an engineered element by John Moran, um, that can will show GFP or green uh, enhanced green fluorescent protein uh, glow after one round of retrotransposition. So what that looks like is um, we see those green cells in uh, the the dish of tissue culture, and when we have a green cell, we know that that was able we were able to see um, new insertion. So with that in mind, um, uh, we. This is work from uh, many years ago. We set up to to look at uh, earlier stages of uh, neuronal development. So those are the baby neurons. So the neurons that the, the the progenitor cells that are going to become neurons uh, if we um, coax them with um, uh, specific factors. And we uh, uh, used uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. So those cells. Uh, that we could uh, make from a patient's uh, skin. And we uh, use cells from Rett syndrome, patients with Rett syndrome, which is under the umbrella of the autism, has some characteristics from autism spectrum disorders. So we took those neuroprogenitor cells highlighted here on the top, and we um, added the uh, line one indicator cassette to be able to see line one activity in real time. And uh, we not only detected line one activity on uh, neuroprogenitor cells here called NPCs from 
um, healthy individuals, so those are the called here wild type uh, WT, but also we were able to see an increased activity, an increased real time jumping or mobility of line one elements on red syndrome patients. Uh, so that highlighted to us that line mobility was happening in human diseases at earlier, potentially earlier time during development of the brain. Uh, we went ahead and uh, looked at the potential causes for that increased mobility in uh, those the cells from derived from these patients, and uh, we know that the gene that represses one of the genes that repressive line represses line one expression um, called MECP2. It's a methylCPG binding protein. It's not functional in red syndrome patients. So uh, just to to give you uh, an idea of how how this gene works, it uh, um, occupies uh, uh, a portion of line one element in the genome that is responsible for the control of that element. And when you don't have MCB2 here, that's in yellow, uh, uh, shown in yellow, um, you will not have line one or you have a, uh, 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 you don't have line one repression. So line one goes up. So motility, uh, mobility of line one can be regulated in neuronal progenitor cells and could play a role on complex neurological conditions. Since then, uh, um, other uh, researchers showed involvement of line one uh, activity in uh, other neurological condition, conditions such as um, uh, schizophrenia, for instance. Now, we want to shift gears a little bit and uh, uh, look at evidence for line one mobility in evolution, and we wanted to see if we could use the current models that we had in the lab uh, to study that. So we went even further back into the developmental process, and we used those pluripotent stem cells uh, to look at uh, line one mobility in real time. So we, we took uh, a human, bonobos and chimpanzees, so those are our closest living relatives, uh, uh, and cultured those induced pluripotent stem cells from all of those uh, uh, of these uh, spe different species. And we looked for evidence of uh, line one retrotransposition in uh, these stem cells from the different species. And what we noticed, we used the same uh, indicator that we had used before. So we're looking for green cells, the GFP positive cells. Um, and what we noticed is, yes, we do see uh, mobility in human cells, but we do see a significant increase in the number of uh, line one positive cells uh, in bonobos and chimpanzees, quantified here in the right. So we, we detected increased mobility in chimpanzees and bonobos, and uh, associated with that increase uh, was also a decrease, so here showed in green, of those two um, genes that are known repressors for line one. So they were in, shown in red, were upregulated in humans, so there was more of the repressor uh, proteins in humans compared to chimpanzees and bonobos. So that means um, uh, that line one was repressed in humans uh, in part by the increased presence of those two proteins, also shown here by those very dark uh, uh, um, uh, bands compared to chimpanzees and bonobo lines we had lighter bands, so less presence of the repressors. So since they didn't have the repressors present, the chances of the line one to be higher and, and jumping more was uh, higher too. So line one was repressed in humans, but not chimpanzees and bonobos during embryonic development. So we asked the question, does increased line one mobility in non-human primates, in chimpanzees and bonobos, as we've seen previously in the cells, does it result in more line one insertions, more lines in the chimpanzee genome compared to the human genome? And um, to answer that question, uh, we collaborated with Chris Banner at UCSD and also Inigo and Alfaisa and Ahmed Tenli, were, that were both at, uh, um, in the lab at the time. And we, we compared line, the presence of abundance of the elements in the genomes for various subfamilies, uh, different subfamilies of line one. 
so the way we looked at that is um, we compared the older line one elements. Uh, so we looked at both genomes, human and chimpanzees, and we searched for all the line one elements first, the ones that uh, were present before the split between the species. So those are the L1PA4, L1PA3, and PA2. And when we look at the, the older elements, we didn't see a significant difference. Now, when it looked at the newer line one elements, which are present in the genomes of all human or chimpanzees, because they are after the split, uh, we did uh, see a significant difference where line one from uh, primates, non-human primates, more increased. So there were more abundance of the sequence from uh, uh, greater representation of recent line one content in chimpanzee genome compared to human genome. So we hypothesized that increased line one insertions in chimpanzee genomes could potentially contribute to increased genetic variability in chimpanzee populations. When we looked for evidence for increased variability in chimpanzees compared to humans, we uh, found um, some uh, data for that in literature. Work from um, a laboratory of uh, Evan Eichler um, looked at great ape genetic diversity and population history, whole genomes of 78 great apes. And what uh, um, we're showing here is genetic diversity. What they're, they're sh we're showing, I'm showing this image is gene genetic diversity measured by expected heterozygosity. Um, what it does, it, it will describe the expected describe the expected proportion of heterozygous genotypes under uh, hardy weinberg equilibrium. Genetic diversity is the probability that a pair of randomly selected alleles from a population is different. Let me. Um, say that in different words. So um, what this uh, measurement does, the expected heterozygosity, it compares genes, set of genes that you get from mom, and set of genes that you get from dad, and asks the question, are they the same or are they different? And how and what is the proportion of the different uh, uh, that you have different mom from dad in your population. So, and that's called heterozygosity when you have different sets of genes from mom versus dad. So if your population has a high heterozygosity, that means it's, there is more diversity in the population. So in red, I'm highlighting uh, uh, the expected heterozygosity in humans and uh, expected heterozygosity for uh, many of uh, non-human primates. So um, from that study, you can conclude that non-human primate species have uh, increased heterozygosity, which is uh, uh, one way to measure genetic diversity compared to humans. So that's one of the examples. So um, we think that this increased diversity in non-human primate species could have been driven in part by the increased line one activity. So the summary uh, and implications of our studies is that line one elements are more active in non-human primates than in humans themselves. Uh, we also shown that species-specific line one elements are more abundant in non-human primate genomes than in human genomes, especially the newer uh, elements. Uh, and we also have some evidence in the literature showing that genomic diversity in non-human primates is increased. And we think that that could be potentially driven uh, in part by line one activity. So what are the implications of our uh, findings? Um, so longer brain development and cortical expansion in humans involves many successive cell divisions. If you have uncontrolled line one mobility, that can be a dangerous liability to proper brain development. Now, we speculate that a more stringent line one suppression uh, during early development might have been required in the lineage that, uh, uh, that is leading to, to modern humans. And uh, with that, I would like to uh, thank you all for coming uh, and thank uh, um, Rusty Gage, Inigo Narfaiza, Armand Deli, and Chris Benner that were uh, directly involved in, in this uh, work. 
I would also like to thank uh, a, a very uh, uh, bright and uh, uh, amazing group of uh, women that has uh, helped me a lot over the years for this project and uh, associated projects. And uh, I also would like to thank my uh, new CSD students that are going to uh, be taking some of the non-human primate work on, Isabel Autumn and John. Uh, I would also uh, like to thank Carta and the Comparative Anthropology series for inspiring uh, this work. And thank you all so much. Hello, my name is Joe Hasia, and I'm on the faculty of the Keck School of Medicine of USC. And today I'm going to be talking about phytanic acid metabolism. Our objectives are to discuss the bioenergetic challenges of a larger brain size in humans relative to non-human primates, to describe anatomical differences in the guts of human and non-human primates relevant to energy metabolism, to discuss how the branch chain fatty acid, phytanic acid, can be obtained through dietary sources and catabolized in primates, and finally, to relate phytanic acid levels measured in blood specimens to human and non-human primate diets and physiology. One of the overarching questions that has interested my lab and many, many others is, what are the metabolic repercussions of a large human brain? And as a result of this, over the past several decades, there have been numerous hypotheses, the most impactful, in my opinion, is the expensive tissue hypothesis that was formulated by Leslie Aiello at the University College London and Peter Willer at Liverpool John Moores University. And they related gut and brain size with the idea um, that suggestion that the metabolic requirements of a relatively large brains are offset by a corresponding reduction of the gut. So in this particular nice figure summarizes it from their paper, we're looking at the direct uh, connection of the smaller gut with the larger brain, uh, providing increased energy availability to fuel the metabolic needs of the larger brain. And this is also tied in with higher quality diets, which can increase energy availability and reduce bulk and cause more rapid assimilation of foodstuff in, this, in, in the smaller gut. And this is also related to the evolution of more complex foraging behavior. And in addition, with the higher quality diet, there's been a, a whole um, field of research about the uh, evolution and the development of meat eating and cooking in the human diet, and how that uh, can potentially impact the energetic needs of a larger brain. Now, the expensive tissue hypothesis has been subject to much discussion like any other good hypothesis and has led to many different modifications and different um, alternative hypotheses. However, I am very impressed with the impact that is made in this particular field because it really spotlighted another difference in human and non-human primate anatomy, and that is that of the digestive tract, which has both similarities and differences across humans, orangutans, and humans, as shown in this particular, in this particular slide. You're seeing a very similar architecture of a, of a small stomach which is then uh, connected obviously to the small intestine and then the large intestine over here in all of these three um, panels. However, you could see differences in the, in the proportions of the gut or the relative proportions of these various components of the gut. So in the work of Catherine Milton in, at UC Berkeley, and she had a nice paper in the Journal of Nutrition in 2003, where she, quantified the relative gut volume of in gibbons, siamangs, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and humans of the stomach, small intestine, cecum, and colon. And I want to highlight over here the, the massive differences or dramatic differences, I should say, in the relative gut volume um, of the small intestine in humans relative to the other non-human primates in this particular uh, chart here as well as the diminution of the colon size in, in humans relative to the other species. So one of the questions this uh, begs is, how does this relate to energy metabolism in primates? Well, it turns out the microbial fermentation in human grade eight hindguts, which is gonna also be comprised of the, of the colon and large intestine, 
the, they're involved in breaking down complex carbohydrates that are not processed and absorbed in the small intestine. And the major products of hindgut fermentation are short-chain fatty acids, which are uh, energy-yielding substrates for colonic mucosa that regulate its growth and blood flow and promote sodium and water absorption. Now, great apes can, in the wild, derive significant levels that are total daily metabolic energy from fiber fermentation, as shown over here in wild chimpanzees, orangutans, and Western gorillas, and the ranges from 7% up to about 60%, mainly in the higher um, uh, area of that range. In contrast, humans on Western diets are thought to obtain no more than 10% of their daily energy needs through hindgut fermentation. And it's likely higher in populations with lower quality diets and instances of small intestinal malabsorption. Now, what about other products of gut fermentation of, of plant materials in addition to these short chain fatty acids? Well, phytanic acid is another product of gut fermentation of plant materials in certain mammals. And the star of the show here is chlorophyll, which is a, 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 a most abundant molecule in in nature, which is going to be a major component of um, the foodstuffs of individuals who are uh, ingesting plant materials. And it turns out in ruminant animals, such as a cow, the gut fermentation of plant materials can break down chlorophyll by the liberation of this particular side chain to phytol. And this is happening by the activity of microbes in the guts, in, in the, in the guts of these uh, ruminant animals. And phytol itself in all land mammals surveyed today can be oxidized to a molecule called phytanic acid, which is a branch chain fatty acid, which is stored in ruminant fats and is also present in certain dairy products. Chlorophyll itself can also be in the marine food chain through the digestion of phytoplankton by zooplankton and krill, and which is then converts it just similar to land mammals to phytanic acid and once it gets in the food chain, it becomes present in certain fish, marine mollusks, and whale fats. Now, in contrast, humans cannot produce appreciable amounts of phytanic acid by chlorophyll catabolism. And this is classic work in the 1960s of individuals who are actually fed radio-labeled chlorophyll and shown that it, it passes through the, the system with uh, limited modifications, if any. Uh, humans themselves, though, can obtain phytanic acid from marine and terrestrial food chain, and phytanic acid, though, provides no uh, known health benefit to humans. So this is the key here, that obtaining phytanic acid from the marine and terrestrial food chain, knowing that humans historically have had um, much greater consumption of meat and marine products relative to that of other great apes. This is a brief uh, depiction here of a simplified digestive system of a cow who's ingesting grassy material, which would then cause their um, exposure of chlorophyll in the rumen to be then um, uh, by microbial activity to be converted to phytol and then stored in fats as phytanic acid. Now, phytanic acid itself is broken down in humans and other non-human primates in the liver, and it's broken down in a metabolic organelle called the peroxisome. So phytanic acid is a branch chain fatty acid has an unusual mechanism of being catabolized. It actually first gets, in, gets converted to a CoA ester, which gets imported it itself, this CoA ester into the peroxisome. And the activity of an enzyme called phytonol-CoA hydroxylase, PHYH, which I'm going to get back to in a few moments, is involved in it converting into some downstream metabolites that are then eventually converted to a molecule called pristanic acid. Pristanic acid itself is now capable of being um, metabolized through standard beta oxidation. Now, this particular pathway I've shown here is the alpha oxidation of fatty acids, which is an unusual specialized pathway. Beta oxidation is more the norm, and beta oxidation in the peroxisomes of pristanic acid leads to medium chain fatty acids that can be exported into mitochondria for beta oxidation to carbon dioxide and water. Now, phytanic acid, as I mentioned, has no known health benefits. However, Phytanic acid overaccumulation can be toxic in humans. 
which is interesting because we're thinking of humans as being the species that has meat and marine products in their in their uh, in their food supply um, through uh, over historic time frames. So adult restin disease is a recessive disorder with an incidence of about one in a million uh, individuals in various populations. And it's caused by loss of function variants in the SPI-H gene, the sphytinyl-CoA hydroxylase gene. People with adult Refsin disease have impaired phytanic acid catabolism and can accumulate stores of phytanic acid in various tissues due to dietary exposure. And this can lead to a polyneuropathy, loss of vision, hearing, and smell, ataxia, a skin condition called ichthyosis, some skeletal involvement, as well as some cardiac involvement. And what I'm highlighting here is the, the Global Dare Foundation, which has been founded by patient advocates to be able to promote uh, research into adult rest and disease. So we have an interesting now connection between phytanic acid, which is present in the diet, and the fact that there is a need to metabolize phytanic acid properly or else there can be severe health consequences. So we became interested in looking at the relative abundance of phytanic acid levels in human and non-human primate tissues. And in the easiest tissues to obtain were red blood cells, the most readily available. And what we did by um, our collaborators at the Kennedy Krieger Institute looked at the relative abundance of fatty uh, phytanic acid in red blood cells relative to all other fatty acids that were present in the, in the specimen. And we looked at a collection of cohort of individuals, including humans, apes, old world monkeys, and new world monkeys. And what we've shown here are the numbers of individuals in each individual category. In humans, we had included individuals on vegan diets for over a year, as well as on Western diets. The individuals on Western diets have about a 50 to 100 milligram phytanic acid daily intake, whereas those on the typical vegan diet have less than two milligrams daily phytanic acid intake. All the captain non-human primates here have a very low phytanic acid diet, very similar to that of in magnitude of phytanic acid intake relative to vegans of about two less than two milligrams daily intake. And in this box plot, you can see very readily that individuals, humans on vegan diets by far had the most, um, uh, had the lowest percentage of fatty acid in uh, phytanic acid in the red blood cells relative to other fatty acids. And this is you know, remarkably consistent across all the other individuals on this particular, um, in this cohort. The Western diet individuals um, who are uh, uh, actually the humans showed higher um, levels of phytanic acid as would be predicted. But there are other um, species, including orangutans, which uh, are on very low level um, phytanic acid intake in their diet, and yet they have remarkably higher levels of phytanic acid in their red blood cells. So they're obtaining it in one way or another through their diet in a way that humans cannot do so. Now, the rates of catabolism of phytanic acid in cultured human and non-human primate skin fibroblasts are similar. Here are individuals, human, chimpanzee, bonobo, gorilla, and orangutans, and measuring their rate of phytanic acid oxidation when radiolabeled lipid was added to the culture medium. And what you're seeing here is that there is overlap in the relative uh, oxidation um, of uh, rates of phytanic acid in these particular species. And it's very similar also in prostanic acid, which you might recall as a downstream metabolite of phytanic acid metabolism. So all species showed a robust cellular catabolism of phytanic and prostanic acid. But we did find something remarkable that there are over twofold more abundant level, uh, higher levels of Phi-H messenger RNA expressed in human relative to chimpanzee, bonobo, and gorilla fibroblasts. And you might recall Phi-H is one of the key enzymes that is involved in phytanic acid catabolism. So to explore this a little bit more back in 2010, we did a, a reanalysis of transcriptomic data from tissues obtained from chimpanzees uh, and humans um, which were published by Svante Pabo's group. And we looked exclusively at the expression levels of genes which are involved in phytanic acid alpha oxidation, which is the early stage of phytanic acid degradation in peroxisomes, 
followed by peroxisomal acid beta oxidation, which is the later stage of phytanic acid metabolism in the peroxisome. And we also looked at the genes that are regulated by a transcription factor called PPAR-alpha, where phytanic acid is known to actually be involved in regulating its activity. When we looked across these tissues from liver, heart, brain, uh, testes, and kidney, what we found was something that was quite remarkable in, in our opinion, was that there was highlighted in orange are differences in gene expression that were significantly different across the species. So in this particular case, in orange, we had higher levels of human transcripts relative to those from chimpanzees. And in green would be higher levels of transcripts in the chimpanzee relative to the human specimens. And those all had um, Bonferroni corrected um, uh, p-values of less than 0 0.05. So this is a robust analysis. And we're seeing higher levels of genes such as um, expression of Phi-H in liver, heart, and brain, and kidney in humans relative to uh, chimpanzees. We're also seeing higher levels of peroxys of the transcripts related to phytanic acid, alpha and, ox uh, alpha and beta oxidation, in both um, liver, heart, and testes. And corresponding, we also see higher levels of genes that are regulated by the transcription factor PPAR-alpha in these particular tissues as well. So in conclusion, relative to humans, diverse captive non-human primates have higher red blood cell phytanic acid levels when fed plant-rich phytanic acid deficient diets, okay? Human great apes, cultured skin fibroblasts all show robust phytanic acid metabolic activity. Our favorite hypothesis is that unlike humans, diverse captive non-human primates could obtain substantial amounts of phytanic acid from gut microbial degradation of ingested chlorophyll, and red blood cell phytanic acid levels could provide a biomarker of gut fermentation activity useful for evaluating the digestive health of captive non-human primates. I'd just like to briefly acknowledge the, our collaborators, including individuals in my lab at USC and those um, at uh, in collaborators at Rutgers University, the Alamogordo Primate Facility, Kennedy Krieger Institute, Zoological Society of San Diego, the Southwest National Primate Research Center, funding through NIH, and they'd also have a special shout out, shout out to the Global Dare Foundation, which is doing admirable work trying to find better treatments for individuals with adult Refsum disease. Thank you very much. Hello everyone. Today I'll be talking about the arcuate fasciculus, which is a white matter fiber tract within the human brain. We all know that one of our most important cognitive specializations is our capacity for language. It's safe to say that only humans can combine thousands of arbitrary symbols according to a defined set of rules to create phrases with a nearly infinite variety of meanings. So there must be some neurological specialization that supports this cognitive linguistic specialization. What is it that's different, different about the human brain that allows us to be capable of language? Well, human brains we know are about three to four times larger than the brains of our closest living relatives, the chimpanzee. And so perhaps this explains why humans are capable of language, whereas other primates are not. Perhaps we simply have more brain power because we have a larger brain. Well, this hypothesis has been challenged by the observation that um, there are some human beings who have chimpanzee-sized brains and we call those people microcephalics, who have language capacities that exceed those of language-trained chimpanzees. And so that suggests to us that there must be some qualitative differences in addition to whatever quantitative differences there are. There must be something about the internal composition of the human brain that's different. So in the 19th century, neurologists like Broca and Wernicke identified cortical regions of the human brain that were involved in speech production in the case of Broca and speech comprehension in the case of, of Wernicke. 
Homologs of both of these areas have been, been identified in non-human primate brains. And here, for example, you can see on the right side of the slide, the location of Broca's and Wernicke's areas homologs in the brain of a rhesus macaque. However, a number of specializations have been identified in human Broca's and Wernicke's areas that might help to explain our capacity for language. So for example, Broca's area is larger in the left than the right hemisphere in humans, but that's not true in non-human primates. And the cortical columns in Wernicke's area are also larger, wider in the left hemisphere than the right hemisphere in humans. And again, that's not true of non-human primates. But today I'm going to be talking about uh, the connections between Broca's and Wernicke's area, and that connection is known as the arcuate fasciculus pathway. Uh, in a now uh, classic publication in, from 1970, Geshwin depicted the arcuate fasciculus, as you see here, and um, he was right insofar as the arcuate fasciculus connects Broca's and Wernicke's area, but this picture is actually a little bit misleading because the arcuate fasciculus extends well beyond classic Wernicke's area in the human brain. So back in 1895, the French neurologist Dejerine used post-mortem dissection to describe the arcuate fasciculus. From both his written description and his illustration, it's clear that the arcuate fasciculus extended beyond Wernicke's area and into the ventrolateral temporal cortex. So here is where Wernicke's area would be, and you can see the arcuate fasciculus projecting well beyond um, Wernicke's area. With modern neuroimaging methods, it's become possible to revisit this question. Specifically, diffusion tensor tractography allows for the visualization of white matter fiber tracts in the human brain. Diffusion tensor tractography is based on the fact that water will preferentially diffuse parallel to the direction in which axons are oriented. Thus, by simply following the principal direction of water diffusion across voxels, we can estimate the trajectory of white matter fiber tracts. Diffusion tractography is not perfect. We know that it can be vulnerable to both false positives and false negatives. Nevertheless, several studies have reported good correspondence between tractography results and the gold standard anterograde and retrograde tracer studies that have been done in uh, macaque monkeys, for example. So in this study by uh, Schmaman et al., you can see a close correspondence between the tracer and tractography reconstructions of the first, second, and third branch of the superior longitudinal fasciculus. Reconstructions of the arcuate fasciculus using diffusion tractography agree with Dejerine in showing that it extends well beyond classic Wernicke's area. So here you can see um, where Wernicke's area is, and there are projections to Wernicke's area, but there are also um, a large number of projections ventral to Wernicke's area. In most humans, we know that language is lateralized to the left cerebral hemisphere, and so therefore it's of interest that the human arcuate fasciculus um, on average tends to be larger in the left than the right hemisphere. So this is one sort of piece of evidence to suggest to us that perhaps it's important for language. And that leads to the question of what exactly is the function of the arcuate fasciculus? Our knowledge about the function of the arcuate fasciculus is based heavily on evidence from brain-damaged patients. This evidence has implicated the arcuate fasciculus in multiple different linguistic functions. Originally, back in the 1800s, lesion studies implicated the arcuate fasciculus in word repetition. However, more recent studies have also linked it with a wide range of different linguistic functions including naming, so for example, naming um, seen objects, complex syntax, speech fluency, and word and sentence comprehension. 
Some researchers have examined the development of the arcuate fasciculus across childhood. This study divided the arcuate fasciculus into two different components. So there's this yellow component that you see here, that you see here that terminates in the premotor cortex. And then there's this purple component that terminates in Broca's area proper. Now, if we look at um, what these pathways look like in newborn infants, we can see that the yellow pathway is visible and present and detectable in newborns, whereas the purple pathway is not. Um, the group that has done this re research, Angela Friederici and her colleagues, has argued that this yellow pathway is involved in mapping of sound to articulation so that it would be particularly important for infants as they're learning phonemes by repeating the sounds that they hear. Um, and this is probably a, a really important for the, the babbling phase of human infant development. Um, on the other hand, the purple pathway is hypothesized to be more involved with complex syntax, which is of course something that newborn infants are not capable of. Um, and in fact, the purple pathway is not even fully developed in seven-year-old children. And that's interesting because we know that seven-year-old children can still make mistakes in terms of processing syntactically complex sentences. In fact, um, the arcuate fasciculus is not fully mature even by age nine or 10. So this is a study that looked at the, the development of the arcuate fasciculus in terms of its um, white matter integrity or its degree of myelination. And they showed that even by age nine or 10, um, the arcuate fasciculus is not fully myelinated. Um, and furthermore, among the group of children that they studied, the maturation of the arcuate fasciculus as reflected by its degree of myelination was correlated with both the speed and accuracy in decoding complex syntax. And so here, this is just showing um, myelination of the arcuate fasciculus being positively correlated with the accuracy in decoding this, uh, these complex syntactical sentences. So the question, next question is, what does the arcuate fasciculus look like in non-human primates? If we think this pathway is important for language and humans have language but non-human primates don't, we might expect the pathway to look quite different in non-human primates and perhaps even um, non-existent. So back in 2008, we did a comparative diffusion tractography study in which we tracked the arcuate fasciculus in human brains, chimpanzee brains, and rhesus macaque brains. And our tractography results are shown on the left, but um, I'll present our results uh, schematically to you on the right. So in humans, we found, as expected, that the arcuate fasciculus projected to um, classic Wernicke's area, but also well beyond that into the ventrolateral temporal cortex, including the superior temporal sulcus, the middle temporal gyrus, and even into the inferior temporal gyrus. In chimpanzees, on the other hand, um, the arcuate fasciculus pathway is less prominent and it's focused primarily on the homologue of Wernicke's area in chimpanzees. And there were a small proportion of chimpanzees that additionally showed weak projections into the middle temporal gyrus, but nowhere near what we saw in humans. And then uh, finally in rhesus macaques, there is a weak arcuate fasciculus pathway that projects um, primarily to Wernicke's area homolog. Also, um, it's important, again, to emphasize that the arcuate fasciculus is more prominent in the left than the right cerebral hemisphere in humans. And in 2012, we showed that that is also the case in chimpanzees. So the chimpanzee arcuate fasciculus is more prominent in the left than the right cerebral hemisphere. And this suggests to us the possibility that that leftward asymmetry evolved prior to the time at which humans and chimps diverged 
approximately six to eight million years ago. We can ask, well, what is this cortex doing in the ventrolateral temporal lobe that the arcuate fasciculus is projecting to in the human brain? And this is a, a meta-analysis of human fMRI studies of, of language um, showing you that this cortex on the lateral surface of the temporal lobe is involved in um, semantics, syntax, and phonology. So it's involved in several different higher-level linguistic functions. And that means that the, the cortex that the arcuate fasciculus is reaching in the um, ventral lateral temporal cortex is involved in higher-level linguistic functions. Uh, finally, th there was an important follow-up study to uh, the comparative work that we did, which was done by Roger Mars' uh, group. And I think it's a really interesting and creative study. wanted to say a word about it. Um, so what they did in this study is they took the cortical surface of chimpanzees and they warped that cortical surface to the cortical surface of the human brain. And then they took that transformation and applied that to the chimpanzee tractography results in order to predict what the arcuate fasciculus should look like in humans, assuming that the arcuate simply maintained connectivity between expanded anterior and posterior language cortices. And what they found, so that the prediction that they made when they did that was what you see here in blue. Um, but that differed quite a bit from what you see in actuality, which is what you see in red. And so you can see that the, the actual projection extends much further into the temporal lobe than the prediction. And what this means is that the human arcuate fasciculus um, expanded beyond these language areas that were, inter were innervated in chimpanzees, and it expanded into new cortical territories in the human brain. And I think that's a very important um, insight. Um, finally, a, an important caveat about all of these comparative studies is that this work um, has only examined the brains of captive non-human primates. Um, we don't know if the brains of non-human primates from the wild uh, will look the same. And I happen to know that there are researchers um, working on this question, so we'll have to stay tuned for that. So in summary, the human arcuate fasciculus is implicated in several different linguistic functions, including word repetition, lexical semantics, and complex syntax. The arcuate fasciculus is not fully developed until late in childhood, and it tracks the development of syntactical abilities. In contrast to chimpanzees and rhesus macaques, the human arcuate fasciculus is much more prominent and extends well beyond classic Wernicke's area into the lateral temporal cortex involved in lexical semantics and syntax. And finally, in contrast to rhesus macaques, the arcuate fasciculus is leftwardly asymmetric in both humans and chimpanzees. Uh, I'd like to thank all of the co-authors who were involved in this work, which is really too many to name, um, but special thanks to Matthew Glasser, Todd Preuss, and Timothy Behrens. And well, we're very grateful for the funding from the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Yerkes Primate Center. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.